Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting harvesting happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about misbelief and mayhem, how irrational things become alternative facts. My guest today is Professor Dan Ariely. Dan Ariely is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University and a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He does research in behavioral economics on the irrational ways people behave described in plain language. Dan has written New York Times bestsellers, including Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. His most recent book, which I'm super excited to talk with him about, is Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things, and it's now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Lovely to be back. Let's talk about your personal experience uh, with COVID and the accusations that were going on around you and what sparked your interest in misbelief. I think the right way to describe it is, first of all, to describe the high I was in during COVID. And and the reason was that uh, all of a sudden social science was unbelievably important. Uh, Everybody wanted to understand something. Do fines work? How can we get people to wear masks? Uh, what do we do with distant education? How do we give money to people who are on furlough? There are all of these questions. And I basically kind of, uh, with two phones and my computer, trying to answer questions from all over the world. And I feel I'm the most useful I could have been. And I, I'm so, you know, of course, there's lots of terrible things happening, but I, I feel I'm doing my best. And all of a sudden, I get an email in July, and it says something like, Dan, uh, what happened? How have you become this person? And I answer, how? <laughs> what happened? And I get lots of links. I'll just describe one. That link describes how I was, the pictures of me from hospital. As, as you know, I was, I was badly burned. I was in hospital for about three years. So, so it starts with pictures of me in hospital. And then it says that because I was badly burned, I started hating healthy people. And that's why I joined... <laughs> That's why I joined Bill Gates and the Illuminati and the Cabal. I became the, the chief consciousness architect of the pandemic, and in an attempt to kill as many healthy people as possible. 
and there were lots of other stories, but you get you get the basic uh, story. And and I had two periods. I had about a month in which I I just tried to argue with these people and convince them about what I was really doing. I thought that everything I was doing was for the better of humanity every moment, and I tried to convince them. I failed, and it took me a month to admit defeat. Slow learner. And then I spent the next two years in, in some of the darkest corners of the internet, talking to people, looking at information and so on, and trying to understand this machinery. Because here's the puzzle. We all have people in our circles that five years ago, we would have said, these people are just like us. And, and today we're saying, I don't understand how, how we're both human beings, both seeing the world in the same, in the same way. How can that be? And, and the story of this book is really the story of this process that people go through, uh, and they are the same, and we're not immune from misbelief. And what is the process that they've gone through to make them so, so different? It also holds some of the keys to making things better. I want to just say something about misbelief and us all being vulnerable to misbelief, because I think that's correct, and that's where like the human condition applies to all of us. It's like just where that misbelief begins to focus, right? Externally, internally. So it's it's actually both, right? So so the misbelief is both about believing something that is not true, that the majority of experts, majority of people don't believe, but it's mostly about an internal state. It's mostly about saying this is not just something. So I'm in California now. So Let's say I believe that uh, kale is not that uh, you know good or healthy or whatever. <laughs> you know, it it wouldn't be. I wouldn't call it a misbelief because no, it's it's not going to be central to my personality, to my identity, to my existence, and it's not going to be the lens through which I'll watch, look at everything else. But for misbelief to be a misbelief, it needs to become something central in people's identity and a way from them to view the world from that perspective. So if somebody, for example, believes that the earth is flat, it's not just that the earth is flat. As I say, maybe it's flat, maybe it's not. No, no, no. It's, it's central and it includes all kinds of other elements. NASA is hiding things. All, all schools are teaching the wrong thing. You know, it, it, it's a set of beliefs from which they view everything else. So that's, that's important. Let me ask you just one clarifying question about that. As you're speaking, and we're talking about self. It seems to me we're also talking about self-identity, right? That 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 once these kinds of beliefs take hold, and it's part of the internal structure of our self-esteem, right? Mm-hmm. That there's yeah. self-esteem tied to it, and being part of a group that shares those same beliefs. So then it takes yeah. on more power. So the groups come later. So you're absolutely right. But I had all kinds of uh, observations. But what I call the funnel of misbelief is this machinery that changed people. And the starting condition, the breeding ground for this misbelief is stress. And it's not the kind of stress that says, oh, I'm really busy today. I don't know how I'll finish my work. It's a stress that says, I don't understand the world. Something is not going well. I'm not getting my share. Other people are being treated better. I'm not. We don't know exactly where it's coming from. It could come from violence in the country. It could come from health. It could come from finance, relationship. But we have this stress. And now what we do is we have an urge to explain the world. We have an urge to tell a story. And, and this story has a couple of interesting elements. One is we want a villain. 
We want to, why? Because we don't want to, be, it's not my fault. Right. We need the villain. And we actually want a complex story. Now, usually we want simple stories, but here we want a complex story. Why? Because if I feel not being treated well and so on, I feel like I'm an underdog. And if now there's a complex story that I understand, but most people don't, now I'm in a position of power. So misbeliefs are, are not for nothing. They are a response to a real need. Now, the real needed stress, we would have preferred if people did yoga or took Xanax, right? But, <laughs> or just or bre or breathing. <laughs> or something. But it's not, it's not the right solution we would like, but it's a solution for a problem. So people are stressed. They don't understand what's going on. Uh, they need a story. They need a villain. They need a complex story. And they find one. Now, that's, that's the first part. And then there are uh, three other parts. So we said stress is the breeding ground. Then we have cognitive processes that help usher this process. Then we have personality processes that help. And then the final thing, the thing that seals the deal is, as you said, the social element. And when people get, and I use the term, the funnel of misbelief, also because I want to convey the idea that in the early days, when people are just starting to play with these ideas, it's easier to get them out. But if we wait until they hit the social element, and now most of their friends are in that world, getting them out is going to be incredibly difficult. Yeah. As I think almost everybody listening to this show will be able to identify at least one person, if not more, in their circle. Yeah. That meets yeah. this criteria. And the book really does, it reads first about a story about them. But then it's also a story about their own beliefs. Because if we start examining our own beliefs, we see that we're not perfectly immune from misbeliefs no. ourselves. And then the book is also about the bigger picture of all of this. And the bigger picture is trust. Because, you know, if somebody takes a step in the funnel of misbelief, it means that they have this view that to trust less, trust less the schools, trust less politicians, trust less the FDA, um, whatever it is. And everybody who is losing trust is costing something to society and to themselves. Right? Let me ask you something about some what's closely related to, to trust. Maybe the flip side of trust is doubt. And what I hear you saying is that we shouldn't not have doubt, right? I mean, the, to have a healthy skepticism, to inquire, to yeah. learn the truth or the facts about a situation is important to this process, to, uh, to, to bring ourselves back to belief. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I, I don't think people should follow blindly anything, right? Yeah. It's holding multiple hypotheses is, is wonderful. Even saying something like COVID seems like a real thing, but, but maybe not. Let's just take something, something extreme like that. That's very healthy. And in fact, uh, there's, a, there's a personality trait uh, called intellectual humility. A little bit. The name is a bit arrogant, but but it's about intellectual humility, and it's about the fact that we are willing to hold multiple hypotheses in mind, and we can enjoy the process of marinating in them. But but again, if we create stress, there's no enjoyment, right? If you're very stressed, you want to find a solution. You can't say, "Oh, I'm really stressed. Let me figure. Let me enjoy the process of figuring things out." No, you really need. You have an urge to find an answer quickly with a villain and so on. So 
It's a very nice trait, and it's one of the things we should try and build in ourselves and build in our kids. But it's going to be difficult to execute when we are in high stress. Let's talk a little bit about what happens to our brains and our bodies in high stress, because it makes it very difficult to be in executive, high executive functioning when we're in that heightened state of stress or fear, which is closely related. So if I go back to this first month when I uh, had these discussions with the, with the misbelievers, and then for the next two years, I, I got a death threat almost every day. The, the last one I got was four days ago, so it's, it's less frequent now. Um, but I felt uh, this concept with, we call scarcity mindset. So usually we, we talk about scarcity mindset when we talk about uh, poverty. I'm saying people who are poor and are continuously concerned with, will I be able to pay my bills? Where's the next meal come from? Will I be evacuated and so on? We say some of their mind is preoccupied with that and they have less capacity to dedicate to other things. And I, and I know the research on that. I felt it in an unbelievable way. I was, I was there with these accusations and death threats and I, I felt that I lost uh, maybe 15% IQ. I was just not able to focus. I would say, okay, I know how focusing feels like yeah, and I can't do it. There was, there was a nagging thought all the time somewhere that couldn't, now at night it would really explode, but during the day I couldn't chase it away and it was really, really hurting. And, and when you say, okay, now imagine people are in that situation how how can we function very well how can we in this in this capacity say oh let me enjoy this process let me think about multiple hypotheses and so on and um, not very easy we're going to need to take a break and when we return we will continue the conversation with my guest today dan arielli to learn more please go to his website danarielli.com you can find him on twitter at Dan Ariely on Facebook. You can go to Dan Ariely Official and on Instagram and LinkedIn, it's the same handle. We're talking about Dan's newest book, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things. We'll be right back. Before we pause, let's talk about how much great food and happiness go hand in hand. And thanks to HelloFresh, my life has gotten a whole lot tastier and happier. Fall is upon us, and that means hearty harvests of edible goodness. And if you're anything like me, your time is precious, and outsourcing awesome deliverable meal kits saves time, money, and takes the guesswork out of stocking up the fridge. HelloFresh delivers top-quality, farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and delicious seasonal recipes sent right to my front door. Skip trips to the market and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easier and more joyful. HelloFresh makes eating well a snap with easy-to-follow, innovative recipes that fit every lifestyle. They've taken the stress out of cooking and given me more time to breathe and relax. This makes me extra happy. Did you know that Green Chef and Every Plate are now owned by HelloFresh? I love switching up my orders between brands for variety, and you can enjoy our listener offer across all products. Get game-changing convenience that will please your palate and pocket. 
One of my all-time favorite recipes is the one-pot Thai coconut turkey soup from the Quick and Easy Recipe Collection that goes from stove to table in under 30 minutes. I'm also mad about the fall flavor mini pumpkin cheesecake. Join me in subscribing to America's number one meal kit with healthy menus designed to satisfy your taste buds. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HH and use code 50HH for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash 50HH and use code 50HH for 50% off plus free shipping. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for nutritious helpings of positive goodness. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and at times we all need a little support. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and at the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com to explore experiential online and on-site optimal lifestyle management consulting services, including recovery fortification and life crisis triage. And we're back continuing the conversation with Professor Dan Ariely. We're talking about misbelief and mayhem, how irrational things become alternative facts. Let's get back to it. So, Dan, let's go back to one of the elements of the funnel of misbelief. And you talk about the social aspects, cultural aspects. Let's go back there for a moment. Yeah. So people basically start their journey. And the first thing that happens, sadly, and I have done this sin, and in a minute you'll tell me if you have done it as well, they get ostracized. So let's talk for a second about ostracism. Uh, There's a beautiful kind of anecdote how the research on ostracism started. This guy, Kip, is walking with his dog in the park. Uh, he sees two people playing frisbee. The frisbee falls next to his feet. He picks it up, he throws it to one of them, and to his surprise, they throw it back to him. And they keep on throwing the frisbee back and forth, including him. And after a few minutes, they stop throwing it to him and just play between the two of them. And he feels rejected. <laughs> and he says, why did he feel rejected? He didn't know them. He didn't come to play with them. Clearly, he was an outsider. But then, of course, he went and did a lot of very serious experiment on ostracism using the same approach. Three people playing, tossing to everybody versus tossing to everybody, and then stopping and leaving one person uh, alone. And he showed that ostracism is unbelievably painful. Uh, it changes people's optimism. And it changes people's well-being. And it changes their willingness to help. And it changes dishonesty. It changes lots of things. It just gets us to be bad people. And when I said I, I'm guilty, when, when I have met people in my circles in the beginning who started expressing opinion that I thought were misbeliefs, I did not show enough empathy to them. I made fun of them. Now, you know, not uh, fun, but I, I basically said like things, how can you possibly believe that, right? It wasn't, and when we make small joke at somebody, they, they don't see it as a small joke. They see it as a big the big joke. So the first thing we need to understand that probably many of us without intention have taken people in this very fragile state when they're just trying to explore alternative ideas. And instead of showing them empathy, we chase them away. And what do they do? They go to the, where they can find like-minded people. And 
Now, if you think psychologically and you say misbeliefs fulfill a function, these groups also fulfill a function. Like there, was one, uh, there was one guy who uh, posted a very long post about Nuremberg Trials 2.0. And he said that there will be Nuremberg Trials 2.0 for the people who made crimes against humanity during COVID. And I was one of the people who was going to be trial. And oh, God. He, he declared, he kind of it went through my, uh, my accusations. And then he ended the post by asking whether I should get, people think I should get life in prison or public hanging. And, you know, there's lots of discussion about a thousand comments, people go back and forth. But, but the point I want to make is that their comments were incredibly loving to him. They, they congratulating him on his writing and his clarity of thought and all kinds of things like that. Lots of hearts, lots of hugs, people, accolades. Now, it's not for nothing. There's a lot of support in those groups because these people need support. They're getting less in the physical world and they find, and they find their ways. And then there's other interesting and important social element. One of them is that people have to become more extreme. Imagine you're in a group with 100 people that all share your opinion. And imagine that you say something standard. Uh, whatever it is, it could be about being vegetarian or about Trump or about gender, but you, you say something standard. Uh, you're not going to be elevated to a leadership position in the group. Nobody's going to pay attention to you. When would you get attention? When you say something extreme. In fact, maybe something so extreme that it's not true. Um, but, but by saying that, uh, you basically are marking your loyalty to the group. Right? It's no longer about the truth. It's about saying, look what a Democrat, Republican, vegan, whatever I am, I'm expressing this incredibly extreme opinion. And then, of course, extremity continues because that's not the last comment and other people would, would continue. Well, this touches upon the sort of a basic human need of belonging and connection. And if you're disconnected in in your circle or in the society in which you live, this process of being becoming part of another group, whether it's tr misbelief or belief, make it does make sense. It explains it rationally. But again, yeah. we're having a rational conversation in a rational moment. That's right. And, and uh, there's hope. another important <laughs> element to the social thing, because when we think about resilience, and we think about having social support from the people uh, you know, we depend on and care and, and love and so on, that's a very good antidote to stress. You know, think, about, yeah. think about how much stress we can handle when we feel loved and supported and so on. And, and, and of course, in COVID, some of that social support went away because we didn't have the, the, that uh, closeness of being able to share things with with other people in that way. So, and, and that's another important component. And, you know, as a society, we have less social connections. We have less resilience. Uh, even the increase in inequality is reducing resilience. Just think about, yeah. you know, how likely are people going to go to the neighbors and ask for a favor or help? As inequality increases, the likelihood of that goes down. So, so we... In addition to the stress, we have um, other things that are creating, causing it, like like reduction in resilience, and that's exactly what we need. And we what need more resilience. This, exactly. 
We need more resilience. And you talked in the earlier uh, segment about rebuilding trust. And I don't want this episode to appear as though we're being pessimistic because I think we're both quite optimistic in many ways. So talk a little bit about how we can learn to rebuild trust. Yeah. So uh, before before that, I'll say something about optimism and pessimism. When when I started the book, I, I thought I'll have a chapter for solutions. <laughs> I don't have a chapter for solutions. I have little things throughout the book called hopefully helpful. Uh, but But I do think that there are solutions out there. There are going to be many. There's not going to be one. And, and, and it's urgent. We do need to start with it soon. We're just starting a new election now. season. <laughs> now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and so on. But how do, we, how, do we rebuild, how do we rebuild trust? Uh, the first thing we need to do is we can't start building trust by fighting with people. The moment, the moment you come to people in an antagonistic view, uh, there's no way to build trust. So here are two tricks uh, for that. Uh, and, and in both of those tricks, you, you want to come at people from their perspective. So imagine I come, uh, we meet at a family dinner for Thanksgiving. And instead of attacking you, I say, um, what would it take to change your mind? Right? This is not attacking. I'm purely curious and interested and I want to understand and we explore it. So that's one approach. The second approach is slightly more detailed. It's based on the idea of something called the illusion of explanatory depth. And the illusion of explanatory depth, one, one demonstration I did was with the flush toilet. I asked people, do you understand how a flush toilet works? And people said, yes, on a scale from, you know, whatever, very much. I said, great. Luckily for you, I have all the pieces of a flush toilet. Please assemble it. <laughs> and as you can imagine, nobody could this assemble <laughs> it. And, and after people couldn't assemble it, I said, and how well do you think you understand the flush toilet? And people said, not that much. Now, the principle here is that we hold confidence that is unjustified in most things. And, and one way to break it is not to bombard people with new information. Here's a paper about, no, no, help me understand how this works. So, so we did, for example, in the context of the elections, you think that the elections were stolen. First of all, how do elections really work? How does it work? And, and what, where, where oh. would it fit? Where Most would the people stolen... can't tell you how they That's really right. work because That's we don't right. teach civics in our classrooms anymore. So how would we know? So and, and then and then you say, okay, so how does the how does the stealing exactly work? Where where would it where would it be? And you know, you mentioned in the beginning that that healthy skepticism is important and holding multiple hypotheses. And and what it means is that we want people not to hold these beliefs in very, very high certainty. The moment the the certainty goes down, that's an incredibly healthy process. And by the way, you can do this exercise in almost everything. Uh, draw me a bicycle. Are you sure this is how a bicycle works? Tell me how a <laughs> zipper works, how a lock works. And of course, for invisible things, it, uh, our unjustified confidence is even larger. Things how does like love how, work? How does, how does love, how viruses, how yes. uh, elections, how democracy, how money Happiness. Uh, works. <laughs> so, you know, when, when we think about how do we create these conversations, it's important not to attack, but to come from their perspective and, and go on a journey together. 
of rebuilding. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, who needs to take the first step? So we all know that uh, when we meet somebody, if we want them to tell us a secret, the first thing to do is we need to tell them a secret. You basically give them the power. You say, I trust you. That, that's the first step. I'm giving you doomsday weapon. Here's a terrible secret about me that I don't want anybody to know. I'm giving it to you. Now I'm giving you power. Yeah. And, 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 that's, that, and we all know it instinctively in terms of, of telling a secret. It, it depends on other things as well. It, it works on other things as well. So, you know, if you, if you think about government and citizens, who should take the first step? <laughs> I think it's the government. You know, it's, it's a little bit irresponsible to, to ask the citizens to go first into trust rebuilding. You know, if you think about this next election cycle, we're not starting from zero. We're starting from when we left the last one. Yeah. No, not a particularly uh, good place. At a very yeah. elevated, agitated place. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And it's true for all the institutions. It's true for us as a society. So I think, yes, we do need to take the first steps into, into building trust, I think. Companies need to do it. I think farmers need to do it. I think uh, institutions, FDA, um, uh, the World Health Organization, the government. It, I'm not saying that they've done anything bad, but I'm saying we are at a time of low trust. I'm not blaming anybody for who exactly is responsible for this low trust. We are just in this situation of low trust and steps need to be taken. It's interesting. I have family members who I'm in the same dynamic that you describe. And one of the questions I ask constantly is, tell me more about that. Just because I'm so curious how one could go from sort of measured and balanced to off the rails based upon the information that they're getting in their circles. And the relationship with that person is more important than the disagreement. And I think that's another area that we can look at. Yeah, the challenge with that. So one approach is to say, I'm not going to change your mind. Let me just be friends with you. And and there's some benefit for that because you provide support and resilience and so on. The downside of that approach is that the moment people adopt the framework of misbelief, uh, they're likely to get deeper and deeper into it. Because if you start mistrusting so I was on some radio show the other night and uh, I talked a little bit about this and, and somebody after the show wrote me and said, what do you think about this salmonella outbreak? I said, what, what salmonella outbreak? <laughs> they told me. And I said, okay, you know, I think sometimes bad things happen. That person was sure it was done on purpose. You know, you and I, wow. you and I think that lots of bad things are happening in the world and lots of mistakes happen and, you know, people text and drive and lots, lots of things happen. Uh, but, but we don't see any, uh, only one of these instances as a proof that there's an evil entity out there. And, and by the way, this was a, this was one night when I, I realized that I realized that the misbelievers are really suffering. You know, if you, if you wake up in the morning and you believe in God, you believe in mostly a good entity. Sometimes there's a devil, depending on the particular religion, but, but it's mostly God, mostly good. If you're a misbeliever and you think that there's a cabal out there to get you in some version and poison your kids and reduce fertility and all kinds of things, that's a terrible way to wake up. So th- these misbeliefs are, are actually very deep, very damaging, and they have a tendency to expand because if you start mistrusting, where's the end? 
So I do think that to the extent that we can, approach number one is let's give people social support, but, but we also need to try and get them back. And ideally, we want to find them in an early stages when they haven't gone into the social element. And then we can, there's, a, there's a much better chance of bringing them back. That is probably a good point to end upon, at least for now. And I hope you'll come back and talk more because we always have great conversations, Dan. To learn more about Professor Dan Ariely, please go to danariely.com. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Dan Ariely. And on Facebook, it's Dan Ariely Official. We're talking about misbelief, what makes rational people believe irrational things. Dan, as always, I so appreciate you spending a little bit of your, your day with me. Thanks. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dan Ariely, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mangeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.